Good morning. Today I'll be reading from Acts 17, verses 16 to 21. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Thanks, Patty. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Restoration today. If you're not awake yet, my name's Rob. If you are awake, it's still Rob, and I'm so glad you're here. It is the start of a new season. It almost feels like a better new year than New Year's because, let's face it, in Minnesota, it's death, like cold, darkness, it's everywhere. But I know some of you started new schools, some of you started new classes, some of you might have started fitness classes. I even know some of you uh, had some parties to get back into the swing of a new year, which I decided not to post for, you know, because I wouldn't want that posted of me. So, but sounds like some good, good times. Anytime we go into a new season, I think many of us are people who evaluate where am I at, how am I doing, and what would I like to change or get out of where I'm at. So yes, some of you do this. I know I do this. Um, and when you do that, whether you reflect on your job or your work or your, um, your life, your relationships, oftentimes people will say, I want to either add more spirituality or I want to focus on my spirituality, even t- in 2019. And I think when people talk about this, what they mean is, I want to have more peace or I want to have more strength or I want to have more purpose in my life so that often it's so I can achieve my goals or have more power in my life. Not bad, but you know, I was reflecting with a friend who uh, just had a very, very, very challenging relationship with her dad. And uh, she was an adult, and, you know, she, had, she said, you know, I'm interested in Christianity because I think it'll help me forgive my dad, that I can have some peace there, and then I can move on in my life. Again, nothing wrong with that. It's just it, this idea of this little part of my life, not... This is part of my whole life. It's almost like, and I realize this might be oversimplifying it, but if you've caught the picture yet, it's almost like when people say they want more spirituality, what they mean is they want to have spirituality as if it's this elective class that we can take in school. This part of our life rather than the whole of our life. Like I can take this fitness class and then I can lose weight or add muscle or... You know, and, and then my life will be better. And the problem with that view is that 
is incompatible with the Christian faith. As a teen and young adult, I would struggle with, in a new season, trying to fit faith into my life. And I struggled with this many, 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 many times. And then I kind of realized the problem was that, that I was trying to fit faith into my life. As soon as I flipped the script and started to say, how does my life fit into my faith? All of a sudden, it became so much easier. So as you reflect on this new year, as we start this new year, which of those questions do you ask if you do? Do you ask, how does my faith fit in my life? Or how does my life fit in my faith? Because I believe that Christianity is absolutely this inner transformation, and we do get peace, and we do get purpose, and we do get power, but it's so much more than that. Christianity is like this whole new agenda. It's a new way to see myself. It's a new way to see the people around me. It's a new way to see the world. In fact, that's what true Christianity does. It changes the way that we see and relate to everything every part of our lives. And if you're a Christian, then not only does your inner world change, but every part of your world changes. Another way to say it might be that true Christian faith is deeply personal, but it's not at all private. It's deeply personal, but it's not at all private. And if you are a Christian, then I think you need to know that. Now, if you're not sure you're a Christian or that you believe in faith in Christ or you're sure you don't, then come along this journey for, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes because a lot of times when I talk to people who say they don't believe in Christianity, it's what they think Christianity is and what Christianity actually is are radically different. And so they're almost ignorant to the things they don't know. I'm not saying you're ignorant. I'm just saying that's often the case, and that can be dangerous. So in this short little series that we're calling Ready, Set, Go, we're looking at the way Christ is supposed to change our lives. It's also for people who've wondered if their faith can go into those public places and spaces in our lives. And it's for those who want a deeper sense that the Spirit of God actually does impact everything, but sometimes we quietly wonder if religion can help us get there. So in the scripture that Patty read earlier, just a few minutes ago, we saw that it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with those both Greek both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as those in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happen to be there. All right, in a few weeks, we're going to be starting this whole New Testament series called Immerse. And if you haven't picked up a Bible, you can do so. Kara's in the back. Um, and because we got a generous donation, every house, household, apartment, condo, home person uh, that is a family unit, even if you're a single family unit, you get one free, and then um, you can get additional copies at like less than half price because of the donation. And I'm not trying to turn the sermon into a sales pitch. 
Um, the reason I'm saying it now is because I got to read like the version one of this, uh, gosh, probably about 10 years ago, and I could not believe how much simply changing a little bit of formatting, making it one column instead of two, taking all the little study helps out, and even removing most of the verse numbers and chapter numbers, how much easier it was to read, how much it was easier to read longer and larger. And then by reading longer and larger, I was able to, uh, I was able to understand more. It, it is incredible. Um, and today, so we read this little chunk of this piece of the story of Acts. And story of Acts is this larger story of Jesus Christ, how Jesus came, lived, died, rose, and then sent the Holy Spirit, and then his followers actually start to go out and declare and demonstrate who Jesus was, the redemption that he offers, and the good news of the kingdom of God. And the followers, they start close to home, but eventually go beyond their borders. They even go beyond their continents. And as they go out and they go further and they go into bigger and more diverse places, all of a sudden, the way they do things starts to change. And if you read the whole story of Acts, you, you, you can see this. You don't have to go to seminary to see this. You and I, we can see this. Paul is this religious guy, so he goes into the synagogues, which is like the church of our day. It's um, a place where often, not always, but often people of similar ethnic, cultural, or religious backgrounds would go and gather together. They would worship God. They would pray. They would hear or read the Bible. Nothing wrong with that. And that's where Paul goes. He's, he comes from this religious background, so that's where he goes. And now all of a sudden, in Athens, the story flips, and we see it here. He goes not only to those places, that's a good thing, but he doesn't stop there. He then goes into the marketplace day by day, it says. And I think that's for us too. We can't just go to these religious places in our lives. We've got to go into the marketplaces of our lives. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word marketplace? This Everybody can play. Amazon. Ooh, not bad. Buying and selling. Pretty good. What else? Downtown. Facebook. Facebook. All right, not bad. Community area. Gathering place. Yeah. What else? Money. Bazaar. Health insurance. Actually, you might be right. You might be onto something. Oh, yeah, I just got it. I'm a little slow today. Woo. Anything else? Food. Yes, absolutely. Well, here's some pictures. I don't think any of those are wrong. I actually think they're right. As I study this more, I just realized how narrow my view was. So this is the, um, the marketplace of Athens. It's, it's called the Agora. And it's, um, there are temples, lecture halls, uh, there are, the, the problem with why I'm struggling with this is because we, we don't really have anything in our day and age that is the equivalent of this. Um, like sort of Amazon gets there because it's a place where you can buy and sell just about anything. 
And that was true in the marketplace, but you also, in the absence of technology, had to be there. So in that sense, it's almost maybe like the Mall of America, except it's got to be bigger. Because in um, one, the Agora was the place of assembly, community gathering place, for public debating, for elections, for trials, for buying and selling, and for all kinds of business. One commentator said it this way, at or near the Agora, the marketplace, were sacred temples, law courts, state offices, libraries, art galleries, dance studios, gymnasiums, shops, lectures, concert halls. It was 30, 30 acres of land next to the Acropolis, which is the, where the Parthenon, actually I think this shot is taken from the Parthenon. The Parthenon is that um, temple dedicated to the Greek goddess Athena, and then there's a smaller hill in one of the other pictures called Mars Hill. That's where the Areopagus was. And so all of that was there. It's not just a place for shopping for food or clothing. It was the place to shop for everything. It was the intellectual and cultural capital of the world. Now, Rome has now become the power capital of the world, but Athens was still the cultural capital of the world. So in the absence, again, of technology, everyone had to be there. This is where policies were debated, where artists created, where businessmen and probably businesswomen would make their deals. This is the equivalent of Wall Street. The news media would be there, even though they didn't sell papers because they didn't have papers. They would have heralds declaring the news there. They had philosophers debating there because you didn't have scientific journals. So there was some healthcare talk going on. You had to work out your theories face to face. And then, of course, you had people selling clothing, textiles, trinkets, food, and more. And my whole point in spending a few minutes on that is that that was all happening in the marketplace, and that's where Paul goes. Which I don't think makes sense to us as modern or postmodern people. But consider for a moment Amazon or Facebook or Facebook groups, or even the Mall of America, you can find a niche for any interest or people group imaginable. Uh, in fact, the internet and especially social media allows them to connect. So I was remembering a talk I listened to several years ago by Seth Godin, who did this TED Talk on tr the power of tribes in marketing, in leadership. And he says that people thought the internet would homogenize everybody, but instead it's diversified everyone. So you can find, you know, Ukrainian folk dancing in Minnesota. Did you know that? Like, there, there's a group out there. And if you like red hats and you're a lady, you can join a club. They have them. Um, and if you like red hats and you're an athlete, you can also join that club. I was in that club for a while. If, if you know, neither of those suit your fancy, but you still like hats, you know, you can get a white hat and you can, you can learn to cook with, you know, the white hat cooks. Or, you know, you can join a team of people who like to sail in white hats. So... All kinds of different types of people, and you know, if you don't like those, I was just trying to, you know, wake you up. But again, what I think this has done, and you know, even if you, like, heaven forbid, I f pull out my phone and I look in my Facebook groups, and I'm like, hmm, I'm in a group uh, for people who like the Superior Hiking Trail. 
for the Covenant Ministerium. That's a, been a fun one this year. Um, for uh, uh, Crookston Connections, uh, my neighborhood, uh, a wildlife group, and, you know, I'll just, oh, FCA Endurance. So, like, all of these groups are little niche groups, niche groups. And what it has done, it, I think it's actually made us more like first century Athens. Okay, so maybe you don't agree with me, so just go with me for a moment. So, uh, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word pagan. I usually think, oh, bad. But actually, pagan was simply this word of a person who believed in local niche gods. Okay, so there were gods of places. There were God of Athens, God of Ephesus, God of Corinth, God of Syria. There were idols and statues everywhere in Athens. There was an, uh, the goddess Aphrodite, goddess of love and beauty. There was the god Apollo, god of music and and healing and hurting. Uh, there was the god Hermes, the goddess of commerce and travel. Ares, the god of war. Dionysius, the god of wine and pleasure. Uh, all all these kinds of people. My what what happened though? And here's my point of why I think it's connected. See, the people that followed Glaucus, the god of fishing, would never go give fashion advice to the followers of Aphrodite. It's sort of like when I ask my oldest daughter about what she's wearing, and you know, she then tells me how wrong I am. It's similar. In the same way, the, the followers of you know, Ares would never go get war advice for the followers of Dionysius, the people who love to party. And so to be pagan means you not only believe in these, all these local gods, but it means that you live all of your life in these little segments. This group, this group, this group, this group, this group. And they never, ever cross over. That's how I think we're becoming pagan again. Not in this evil sense, but in the sense of segmentation of everything. And yet, that's not how the Bible tells us to live. That's not how Jesus lived. That's just not what we see. For example, Proverbs 1. It says, wisdom shouts in the streets. God is personified here through wisdom. She cries aloud in the public square. She calls out to the crowds on the main street and and those gathered at the front of the city gates. If God is wisdom, then he has wisdom for every area of our life. I think if Jesus would have gone to Athens, I think he would have said to the fishermen, you know, the followers of Glaucus, hey, let me show you the way. This is how you can fish for people. Or when he ran into the people selling food or drinks or clothing, he would have said, sellers, this is the way. Don't worry about what you eat or what you drink, or what you wear. You have a Father in heaven who knows that you need these things. Or to the people in the latest ideas or fashion trends, shoppers, this is the way. Turn away from what will rust or deteriorate or get stolen. Invest in what's eternal. Now, maybe I'm making a stretch, but I think if there's one God who created everything and is Lord over everything, then he has wisdom for everything. 
And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at what Paul feels and what he does in the marketplace. But for today, I think we see that Paul believes that faith in Jesus Christ is for every area of our life. So if you're a note taker, you might want to write that down, that there's this reality that faith in Christ is for every part of your life. That it's not this little, like, I can only take it here, I can only take it here, that, that my relationship with Christ does or should impact the way that I watch TV or the way I watch movies or how I engage with art or how I engage with other cultures or how I engage with other people. It should impact even maybe the way I eat and how I eat or what I eat. It should impact my work and my hobbies. It's for every part. As when we started this church nine years ago, nine years ago, crazy, we said, we might not have said it exactly like that, but we did say our first value is going to be Christ-centered because we believe that Jesus changes everything for everyone. It's why when you look at, if you've got a worship folder, on our logo, the four icons form a cross right in the middle of it to remind us that Jesus is the center of all of it. Every part of our lives, every day of our lives, for every one in our lives. So there's not like this, it's not a locker that we can go to and we can pull out the Jesus book. So if you'll go with me there, what does it mean? Let's just spend a few minutes thinking about what it actually means in our life. Because you might be going, well, Paul's a preacher or church planter. That's not who I am. So I don't know how to work this out in my life. Well, for that, let's just go over to a uh, kind of a bizarre story in 2 Kings. 2 Kings 5, we'll see this guy. His name is Naaman. And Naaman is the commander of an army of Aram, which is Syria, which is north of Israel. And the text says that he's a great man in the sight of his master. He's highly regarded because the Lord gave him victory to Aram. He's a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. And that's how his introduction ends. Now, had he been an, in Israel or an Israelite, he would have been expelled for such a disease. They were kind of on the edges of society. He couldn't have certainly been in the religious dealings. And as this commander of, the, of an army, he's near the king. He's second in command of the king. So he's got royal duties as well as military duties. And Naaman learns that there's this man of God, this prophet, this miracle worker named Elisha. He learns this from his wife's servant girl who's been captured from Israel. Man, if we had all day, we could spend a little time on that. And this girl sees her master's spouse in this living this dichotomy. Valiant soldier, second in command, leprosy. And she tells him about this healer. And he resolves to go to Israel and seek that healing. And it takes a little bit, but soon he gets there. Elisha hears about it, sends for Naaman. And Naaman goes to his house, expects to see this great prophet because he's this great warrior. 
And instead, a, so, a servant comes out, like hands him a doctor's note, I imagine. Go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. Wash yourself and you'll be healed. And the text goes on. You can read it if you want to. But he goes on to say, like, he fumed with rage. He is so upset. He says, aren't there great rivers in Syria? Why would I go dip myself in the Jordan? It would be like going, really? You want me to swim in the Mississippi River? Uh, no way. And, and what, like, do you not know who I am? Why would you not come into my presence? Why would you send your servant to tell me this? And he, he goes away. Not only does it say he fumes with rage, but then it says that he burned with anger. Like at the start of it and the end of it, he's just hot. And then leaves. And his servants convince him, like, if it was some grandiose thing, would you not have done it? And so he says, okay, he goes. And he's healed. And the moment he is healed, he returns to Elisha. And you see a completely different person. He promises to worship, serve, and sacrifice only to Elisha's God, Yahweh, the one true God, from that time to the rest of his life. He says it this way in uh, 5.15. Now I know that there is no God in all the world, all the world, except in Israel. And what you see is that Naaman's healed, but it's not like he's physically healed and the rest of his life stays the same. His whole life is different. He came to Elisha harsh and proud, and then you see him come back humble and grateful. I think he's healed, but he's also been made whole. Everything is integrated, not segmented into these little pieces. Naaman doesn't do what we do in our country. We love, especially in our country, maybe all the world, we love to swing to these extremes. We either go over here and we insulate our faith, which means that like, ooh, now I believe in God. Now I can't be around anything that isn't godly, that isn't Christian. You know, we do that Christian adjective thing. And, you know, Christian music, Christian food, Christian gr friends, Christian groups. He doesn't, he doesn't insulate. He doesn't say, oh, Elijah, I have to stay here with you because, oh, the people in my country, they worship this God, Rimon. It's so bad. I can't go back there. Because as the military commander and part of the royal court, he had to go into this pagan temple. And when the elderly king bent down, he had to offer his arm and bend down in front of this god, in front of this idol, with the king. He's like, oh. He doesn't say, like, I can't do that anymore. But he doesn't, so he doesn't insulate his faith. On the other hand, he doesn't ignore his faith. What I mean by ignore his faith is he doesn't say like, oh, yay, praise God that I am healed. I will just keep that tucked in over here. I'll just do my job. I won't rock the boat. I won't create any waves. I won't make things uncomfortable. I'll just worship God in private. You've met these people before, right? Like they praise God on Sundays and then they have another God that they follow Monday through Friday. And maybe they're, they're good people, maybe they're not so good people, but it's a totally different person. Naaman doesn't fall into either extreme, either insulating his faith, it's a dance move, he either insulates his faith or he ignores his faith. He lives in this holy middle. 
this holy integration. He, he asks God and gets creative about what it looks like to live his personal faith in his public life. So regardless of where you're at in life, and even what you believe about Christianity, just consider for a moment what that would look like. To ask God and get creative about what it would mean for, if you don't believe, for Christians to live their personal faith in their public life. This holy integration. I, I think that's what Naaman did. I think that's what Paul does. I think that's why he goes to the marketplace. I think that's what Jesus did. And I think that's what God wants you and me to do. To talk to God and get creative about how to live your personal faith in your public life. See, Naaman does it this way. And I don't think any of us can copy it. It's in verses 17 and 18. If you won't accept my gift... Please let me, your servant, be given earth, be given dirt, as much as two mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow down also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord God forgive your servant for this. So he wants to bring this dirt, and I was reading some commentaries about the dirt. It got a little crazy. One of the commentaries said this. This dirt was so that Naaman could build an idol to the God of Israel so that he could set it there when he went into the temple so that he could bow down to that idol while his king was bowing down to this idol. Uh, I'm pretty sure he would have found out pretty quickly that God says, don't make any images or idols. That's like one of the biggest commandments. So, another commentary said, well, Naaman brought the dirt back because, from Israel because his God was this local God of Syria. His God didn't cross borders. And so, he thought that's how the God of Israel worked. So, if he brought this dirt back, then his worship would be acceptable. Except that doesn't isn't compatible with what he says about, now I know that there's no God in all the world except Israel's God. I think the best explanation that I found was that this dirt wasn't for an idol and it wasn't for territorial superstition, but instead it was for witness. It was his testimony. Just go with me on this for a second because the king may have been too old or physically challenged to notice that, you know, his military commander was leaning on his arm and his servants would come and spread some of this dirt out. They, he might not have noticed, but everyone else who was there would notice. His servants would definitely notice. His peers in the king's cabinet would definitely notice. And then he would bow down on that dirt. And they, he's doing all the same things, and yet he's doing it totally different. And I think they would have asked. And isn't that some of the best Christian witness that you've experienced? When people do their jobs well in whatever, whatever area of the world they find themselves, but they do it in such a way where people go, ah, what is that? And then they can, then they can talk about it in normal and natural ways, not super weird ways. 
That's what he's doing. I think he's saying, my healing and my belief in Israel's God have changed my life. And this dirt is a symbol of it. I can't worship the same way. I can't, I'm not acting the same way. I'm, I'm humble and grateful, not arrogant and rude. I, I think Syria was an incredibly aggressive and hostile country. I don't think Naaman is that guy anymore. I think he's saying, I'm the military ruler and I'm going to do my public job. But, and I'm, gonna, I'm not only going to do it, I'm going to do it well. But I'm not going to live the same way I lived. I'm not going to go after countries in the way that we did it before. It's going to affect everything in my life. Certainly, that's how Jesus proclaimed to live. This is what Paul is proclaiming to do. See, Naaman neither insulates his faith nor ignores his faith. He figures out how to live this faith in his public life. And, and really, if this Rimon guy is this local god of Syria, what I think Naaman is saying is, I will serve my country, but I will not worship my country. I think some of us need to hear that. I will serve the company I work for, but I will not worship the company I work for. I will serve my family, but I will not worship my children. I will serve my friends, but I will not be so needy that I'm worshiping them. I will not make them an idol. So if that's true, then what would it look like for you? My wife is an occupational therapist. Some of you know this. And so what this looks like for her is that she prays before she gets into work that God would help her to see every patient that she interacts with as God sees them. That he'd give her insight into every case and that God would lead the conversations. And trust me, she gets to come home with some crazy conversations um, when I was a high school teacher, math teacher, some of you know that I did that, I would pray first that God would give me joy to like the subject that I taught and the students that I had. Second, that he would help me remember what it was like to be a teenager and have 15 bosses in your life. I mean, every class teacher is a boss. And then, you know, if you are in any extracurricular activities, that's a boss. If you have a job, that's a boss. And you have, if you have one or two parents, that's more bosses. So, so many demands and expectations. But then three, to ask small but smart questions that would prompt them to think about life beyond high school and the kind of somewhat difficult relationships and challenges that, you know, you can meet in that and think about meaning and purpose and if there's a God who loves them and wants to know them. So don't go carrying around dirt from somewhere because I don't think that was the point. But I think the principle is that, God, how do you want me to take my faith into every area of my life? We'll look over the next coming weeks about that, but these are the kinds of people that we want to be 
at restoration. And when you join a ministry team or a small group or volunteer to serve in an area, then, then our staff and our leaders, they work alongside you to go, what is it that God has created you to be and how he's created you to live that's already there? And how can that come out more and more? If we want faith to impact every area, then we need to believe that Jesus is Lord over every area. So as the worship band comes up, would you just consider, God, are you Lord of every area? Lord of, of what I buy? And Lord of where I work? Jesus, are you Lord of how I work? Are you Lord over my entertainment? My hobbies? my relationships. God, where do I give my heart? And I love it so much that I'm actually not letting you be Lord over it. God, speak to us. You do love us so much. And you want to be in every part, not to control it, but to help us live these whole and healthy lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.